forever. Dog. Hey folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel for going on 12 years now. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Um, thank you for listening to the podcast, whether you have been there from the beginning or whether you have just picked it up for this episode. I hope you'll stick with it. Um, I'm trying something new. Um, I mentioned a few episodes ago that I started doing some teaching with Script Anatomy, which I really have enjoyed. Um, and it's awoken something in me, which is that I really, you know, love doing that. It's um, part of why I started doing the podcast in the first place is, you know, the democratization of this information. Uh, I truly believe that writing is a craft that can be learned like woodwork or ceramics. And I feel like after doing this podcast now for almost 12 years, I can impart some of what I've learned to you. So I've started this newsletter. Uh, it is a weekly newsletter. You can get it at benblacker.substack.com. And um, the idea is basically an extension of the writer's panel. It's conversations about the business and craft of writing. Sometimes the business is hard to keep up with. And so that's why with the newsletter, we can sort of keep on top of what's happening in the business. Um, craft has changed very little, but I think there's room for a sort of distillation of the conversations, the advice, uh, the stories from, you know, 3,000 writers that I've talked to over these past 12 years. Um, and so that's exactly what the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com, is going to be. Um, I've already launched it. You can subscribe right now. There is a free subscription that you will get a monthly newsletter. Um, the first week of every month is going to be a free newsletter that is about the craft. Uh, it's about, you know, what to write or how to write. Um, it'll be about business. It's going to be, you know, the, the more this is a community, the better it is. So it's going to be about the things that you want to hear about. I've already heard from a few subscribers who want to hear very specific um, advice. And so we'll do that. Um, there's also a paid subscription, which will come out weekly. Um, the paid subscribers will get a lot of extra stuff. And I, you know, I don't take it lightly that there is a paid subscription to this. Uh, and the reasons for doing a paid subscription are multiple, are manifold. Um, and I'll talk about it in on the newsletter at some point, but basically like it comes down to two things. I'm really going to put a lot into this newsletter and I want it to be worthwhile for those of you who are paying. It's only $6 a month. Uh, there's a $66 for the year special going on. Um, and you'll get lots of stuff. Uh, you'll get short interviews with pro writers. Um, you'll get assessments of industry trends. Every month we'll look at Deadline and talk about some of the more important stories that have come out and what it means for the industry. Um, I'm also going to send out templates for outlines. Um, I'll send out script samples, stuff like that. You you tell me what you're looking for. Character workshops, whatever you're, whatever you're looking for. Sorry, make that character worksheets, whatever you're looking for. I want to hear from you and I'll find them and, and offer them to paid subscribers. Um, I think the biggest thing you get with a paid subscription is... I'm going to do monthly, at least monthly, um, live Q&As. 
with professional writers via Zoom that only paid subscribers will have access to. And the gist of these is that you are going to ask the questions that you want answered from professional writers who have been successful in the movie and TV industry. Our first guest is already lined up. The end of October, the last weekend in October, we're going to talk to C. Robert Cargill, who, uh, of course, you know as the screenwriter of um, Sinister, Doctor Strange. Uh, he has the new movie, The Black Phone, came out this year, which is terrific. Um, and Cargill is, I couldn't ask for a better first guest. Um, He's so thoughtful about the industry. He does not live in Hollywood. He does not live in uh, California. He lives in Austin. And, you know, he has a real perspective on the industry and about the craft. He started out, like many of us, as a fan and became a professional. Um, so I think you, you're going to want to be a part of this conversation with Cargill. The info will go out to paid subscribers um, a couple weeks before the Q&A. The Q&A will be the uh, Halloween weekend, fittingly. And um, it's going to be a lot of fun. Honestly, it'll be as long as you all want it to be. You know, you'll have a conversation with Cargill that I'll just sort of moderate. Um, I think I think it's going to be a really good time. I have future guests already lined up and they are, you know, these are industry professionals. Part of what I miss about doing the live writers panel was the Q&A is from the audience. Uh, we had so much fun doing that, and I got to see the same folks uh, over and over at these live events, and I miss that. And so I, I kind of want to recreate that over Zoom, where you know you don't have to live in Los Angeles to be a part of these conversations. So go to benblacker.substack.com. Uh, there's already stuff up there. We launched last week with free um, a bunch of free articles. Uh, this will also be you know, we'll, I'll do all the uh, podcast announcements here, any other announcements that need announcing. Um, once again, that's benblacker.substack.com. Give the, give the paid uh, subscription a chance. Um, do it for a few months. See how you feel about it. Uh, I would really be grateful for the support. If you've listened to the podcast, you know that, like, it's me, it's my engineer, Jordan Katz, um, doing this thing all on our own. Uh, I do all the booking. It's it's work. And so if you've enjoyed the podcast, consider subscribing to the uh, newsletter, uh, uh, a small token of your gratitude for that. I would be very grateful. Um, there's also, I should mention, a opportunity um, to subscribe at a higher rate, which includes for, for 200 bucks, I will read your script and give you notes on your script. Um, check that out when you subscribe. It's one of the options we do. Uh, I'll give notes. We'll do a Zoom session where I talk to you about those notes. I think I'm good at giving notes. Um, and I really love reading new writers. So if you are a writer who's ready to be read, give that a try. Um, again, it gives you a year-long subscription, but it also gives you this bonus uh, of being read and getting notes by me, a professional writer. Um, but if nothing else, uh, it's worth subscribing for the Q&As, uh, which, listen, if they're, if they're as much fun as I think they're going to be, we'll do it more than once a month. I think it could be really cool. And those Q&As won't be available anywhere else, at least not for a long time. Um, all right, benblacker.substack.com. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for supporting this podcast. I really appreciate it. And thanks for supporting me. I appreciate that more than you can imagine. 
They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Before we begin, we've got a great conversation with Greg Matala, who's the writer-director of the new Confess Fletch, which is available to watch right now. Uh, Greg, thanks for chatting, and congrats on the movie. It's really uh, good. Thank you, Ben. I really I appreciate that. Um, let's start with some Fletch business. Um, why now? Why you? Why this movie? <laughs> uh, John came to me, John Hamm came to me uh, about two years ago and said, Miramax owns all of the Fletch books except for the first one, which the first movie was based on. And he said, would you ever be interested in directing that? And part of me immediately was, yes, I would. And then I thought for a second, oh, that's scary. Because people love the original Fletch, including myself and John. And unlike, say, a fictional character like um, uh, Dashiell Hammett's uh, Philip Marlowe, who's been played by 15 different actors, no one else has played Fletch. And people have tried, as I'm sure you know, for years to revive the Fletch character. Uh, so it was daunting, but uh, John had read the books when he when he saw the first movie. He went off and read all the books that were available then, and he loved them. And he saw the difference between the tone of the books and the movie, and how you know Chevy Chase really made it his own in a great way. And I was you know lifelong Chevy fan growing up. I loved everything he did. Uh, so I, I went and read a bunch of the books and saw what he was talking about. And thought, oh, there is another way to do this. And John's really perfect for it. And I've worked with John twice before. So uh, I, I, yeah, I said, and I love detective movies. It's one of my favorite genres. And, and you know, it's, it's a comedic whodunit. Um, but really, that's, you know, when Gregory McDonald wrote, created this character, he was thinking of, of Raymond Chandler and, and Dashiell Hammett and detectives. And he just made him a for the seventies an investigative journalist. Uh, and it was a great idea. Uh, and I couldn't resist, even though right until the very moment I'm talking to you, Ben, I'm a little scared. I'll admit it. <laughs> what, what is there to be afraid of? Uh, you know, the people who just say, don't, don't mess with my, uh, my old movie, but, um, Sure. You know, but there we, are always those people, right? You know, yeah, like no, yeah. nobody hates Star Wars as much as Star Wars fans. <laughs> exactly. I know. I know Ryan Johnson a little bit, and, and I've talked to him about yeah. what, what he was put through for making, I thought, a really wonderful, different Star Wars movie. I mean, you mentioned reading the books and seeing that, like, there's another way into this. What was that for you? How did you start to approach them? Like, was there a pitch involved? What did the, the early stages look like? Well, um, I mean, sort of conceptually, I was thinking, why now for Fletch? Why? Mm -hmm. What's relevant about this character now? And I thought, he's a guy who has his own, I think, moral, ethical code, but uh, his ethical code does not include um, refusing to lie or break the law. He's somebody who sees an injustice or crime or something that needs to be solved and, and people who have been hurt by it. And he wants to get to the bottom of it and he'll get to the bottom of it uh, in a, in unconventional ways. He, 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 you know, scams, he manipulates, he, he tricks people to get to the truth. He's someone who I think is, you know, suspicious of authority. 
uh, and thinks that due process takes too long and often fails. And I honestly think a lot of people probably feel that way about the world right now. We see a lot of bad people get away with stuff and never face any consequences whatsoever. Um, we see a lot of injustice in the world still, uh, whether it's the overturning of Roe v. Wade or, you know, I won't, I won't, I don't need to name the, the rogues gallery of people who, who should be locked up. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think, you know, the frustration of that is very palpable and I certainly feel it. And I think there's a nice uh, wish fulfillment with a guy like Fletch, who's like, the greater good is getting to the bottom of this. And if I have to pretend to be someone I'm not or run a scam or whatever, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, and he's not always right. And the thing I think that's actually kind of endearing about him is he's sometimes very wrong, but he doesn't get embarrassed or try to make excuses. He just goes, oh, whoops, and moves on and tries another way to solve the problem. Uh, and I think that that's a very likable kind of rogue for today. Um, as far as how this developed, um, before John had even approached me, there was a writer on it named Zev Barrow. Zev's a great writer. Yeah. And he was working on an adaptation of the book. And when he finished it, um, he gave it to John and myself and Connie Tavel, the producer. And Zev had like shown me um, outlines and talked to me and let me read some scenes. And it was, it was very funny. It was a very funny script. It was a very good script. But John and I kind of felt like it was a good script for Chevy Chase. Uh, we felt it was too close in tone to the original. Um, and ultimately, we had you know, made a decision we were going to go our own way. I mean, obviously, the DNA of the character is baked into both versions. But a lot of the stuff in the original movie, like putting on disguises and the fake names of famous people uh, and some of the slapstick stuff, that's all Chevy. And he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He's brilliant at it, and I love it. And I, you know, if anyone, younger people don't all know Fletch, you should go watch it. It's it's a great movie. Um, but so we, we looked at Zeb's script, and I decided my job was to go back to the book more. Zeb had had not used as much of the book as as I thought we should, so I I took over and started putting in characters from the book and reshaping things and 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 going back to the tone of the book, and it was. You know, I, th I think Zev's script was a little more uh, contemporary in a sense. It was a little more racy. Um, and as, as someone who's worked in the Apatow world and made Superbad, uh, I, I, I hardly would ever say there's anything wrong with, with, with you know, being filthy. But it, some of the jokes in that vein didn't quite feel right for Fletch. And John and I thought, mm. let's, you know, let's make this a comedy of manners. Let's make it a very verbal, dialogue-driven movie for adults that isn't trying to kind of get the kids to come see it necessarily. Of course, I hope young people see it, but it's, it's, it's a kind of, I don't know, it's a style of comedy. I, I feel like I don't see as much. I feel mm -hmm. I see a, a lot of very, very broad comedy, which is great, but I want to do something a little different. I mean, I'm someone who grew up loving people like Elaine May and Woody Allen and, and, you know, uh, old movies, you know, one of the movies I was watching for inspiration were all the Thin Man movies, um, which were based on a Dashiell Hammett character and William Parrell and Myrna Loy are still incredibly hilarious, yeah. even though they had to work within the, the Hayes Code. Uh, so, so I pushed the script in that direction and then we kind of went from there. Um, that's interesting to hear. And, and I did wonder watching the movie if and, and I am not familiar with the books, and I've never seen the original movie. Um, and I wondered if, like, it felt to me like 
there was more of an adherence to the tone of the book and like what is that tone to you how do you how can you define that um i think you know for me i i love it when the comedy comes from behavior mm-hmm. and from the characters and one thing i i in reading a bunch of the books uh, a quality to the fletch character that maybe wasn't in the original movie so much is that he really likes oddballs and he really hates phonies so <laughs> so he never punches down he'll he'll you know he'll mess with uh jerks privileged tone deaf privileged you know, morons and and you know rich rich folks um and and then although he you know he looks like john ham so he can move in that world there's scenes obviously in a yacht club and he goes to this very wealthy art collectors uh, art dealers home uh and he stays in a really nice apartment and so he's he's in the world of wealthy people and and they don't question him being there but i think his values are different i don't think i don't think fletch even cares about money all that much and that's something that gregory mcdonald said in one of his interviews and I, i kind of held on to that uh, so I think, you know, like I said before, comedy of manners, kind of behavioral stuff. And, and the, the books had these oddball characters that, I, you know, were very much appropriate or funny for the 1970s when it was written. So I had to kind of transform them into hmm. eight, 20, 22 people. Like, for instance, Annie Mumolo's character. There was a character in the book who is a lush who lived in the same building where the murder took place, who was a suspect. And so I turned her into this kind of pothead slash... Um, that shit crazy person. I don't know if I should watch my language or not. No, no. Right. <laughs> okay. That, uh, that, ask about that scene with her in particular in her apartment, which, which is, you know, sort of slapsticky, but it's also, there's like, there is a comedy of manners to it where she is transgressing, right? She's overstepping or understepping. Like, yeah. Not, not following the rules of society and you get to see ham respond to that in a way that i think like a, a broader comedy wouldn't wouldn't play i i hope so i mean i think that i think we really try to make those moments um land but you know it's in a subtle way i mean it's all in an interactive way i mean there's part of me that thinks having Shown the movie sometimes to people who've watched it on their on their t te- on their computers and have then seen it in the screening room. They say some of that stuff lands better in a theater, but of course, hmm. of course, everything's better in a theater. So <laughs> you know, I know the world we live in, and I know how people watch stuff, and I know a lot more people are going to watch this on a, some screen, hopefully bigger than an iPhone. Yeah. Um, but uh, I did want it to be you know to have some dryness and subtlety or or absurdity or not outline the jokes, not make it all about one-liners. Although, you know, obviously I took a bunch of really funny lines that Zev wrote. I took funny lines from the novel. Um, I wrote some of my own. I even, you know, because this is a style of comedy that's a little different than the stuff I've written myself, which has been semi-autobiographical and more kind of melancholy character stuff. Uh, also silly, but um, I, John and I enlisted some of our friends who were great comedy writers. Like he's good friends with Robert Carlock and Paula Pell, who are writers from Third yeah. Rock. And they read the script and gave us some notes. And uh, Neil Gaiman read it and gave us notes because he loves the Fletch books. And John's on the really show, funny. Good Omens. And it's like, he gave me some great notes and was very, also gave me great encouragement because he, he said, I really like how you're approaching this. And so I thought, that's great. okay, good, because I'm terrified. I did want to ask about um, this film's relationship to your past work, because it does feel of a piece. And I've been thinking about, um, you know, 
directing as an extension of writing and looking at the stuff that you've written, which yes, is part, you know, in part often autobiographical. And I'm sure there are aspects of Fletch that are too. Um, I'm curious to hear from you though, how you think it fits in with the stuff for which you are the writer and director. Well, I guess it ended up probably, I did, to, it ended up closer to the style of this other stuff I've done than I expected. One, one reason is that whenever I'm directing a movie I've written, no one's willing to give me much money. <laughs> so we sure. had to do this, you know, in the pandemic, pretty quick for a budget, not as, not as low as the budget on Adventureland, but kind of the same number of shoot days. And, uh, and you know, when you work that way, you know, you know, I envisioned in my head, I could, I could do this in a, in a much more stylized way with more camera moves and, and, and bolder mm. lighting. And I thought, well, I wanted to play from Fletcher's point of view. And I kept seeing like, you know, the way, um, um, some of my favorite movies from the seventies comedies, like Elaine movie, Elaine May movies play, play things, um, you know, step back from the actors often, um, make it about the performances. Uh, and I had a great DP, um, Sam Levy, who's, you know, shot Lady Bird and a bunch of Noah Baumbach movies, and he's got great taste. And we said, well, let's, let's go sort of the more tasteful old school way. Um, not that all my stuff is tasteful. I, 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 I'm proud to say it's not. But, uh, I, you know, the dryness and the comedy coming from more from behavior is probably a through line of the stuff I like. And, yeah. and, you know, when I was very, I mean, I grew up on Long Island without a lot of, uh, my parents weren't like people who went to see foreign films or anything, but they loved movies. So they took me to a lot. So I grew up on seventies films and I grew up on old movies on, I, on TV that I'd watch anything. I had no fear of black and white. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then I got to college and started seeing foreign films and I kind of loved, the ambiguity. I'm a huge Fellini fan, and 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 there's a lot of comedy in his movies, and a lot of it's all from behavior, and so that all sort of got ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. um, and I like I like things that have a certain degree of emotion, but not too overtly sentimental. You know, I mean, a, a murder mystery, they all have kind of a, a wrap up. Which is part of the fun of it, which is because you know life doesn't have 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 any things don't get solved that easily in life. Um, but I but I like things to not play entirely straight. So you know that's why I like detective movies. I mean it's they they're not they're not necessary. I mean there's a formula to them, but they are like Hollywood hates when you write an episodic movie. They're like no 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 it needs to have a beginning a middle and end. And it can't be like t taking these turns all the time. And yeah. detective movies by nature are that. And so, yeah, all that stuff, I guess, yeah. I can't escape myself, Ben, <laughs> as much <laughs> as I try. You know, the episodic nature is something that's really interesting to me. Um, and I think, you know, the movie succeeds and it never feels episodic like that because there is that sort of second act um, escalation. Right. Is this like, what did the drafts look like? How do you like this felt like a difficult thing to the store story wise to put together? Um, the certain plot things changed quite a bit from Zeb's draft to mine. For mm -hmm. instance, who the murderer turns out to be was different in his version. Oh, than mine. Oh, really? 
and and trying to think through how much can you lead the audience in one direction to then reveal something mm-hmm. else um, and how to you know sort of drop in clues and dead ends and red herrings and all the things you need to keep the audience engaged enough that they you know are part of the fun of the mystery um, a lot of mysteries you know uh, withhold information. And this, this one is guilty of that. I mean, you'll, there's certain things the audience isn't privy to until the mm-hmm. very end. Um, but that's, you know, part of the fun of why Fletch developed some theories that turn out to be wrong. And uh, yeah, it was, it was very tricky. It was tricky to figure out how, how to, how to balance that all out with um, not having just endless exposition um, mm. And, you know, for instance, the scene with Andy Momolo, he's trying to get information about someone he thinks could possibly be the murderer. And she's making it very difficult because she's, as I said before, batshit crazy and keeps almost setting her apartment on fire and thinking, cutting her finger and things like that. Uh, so it's, you know, it's embedding the exposition in, in character stuff, like the scene with Lucy Punch and mm-hmm. the, that stuff, you know, that that was fun to write and then just trying to organize it and, and put it in the right order was hard. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and, and practically speaking, how, how do you write for, for something like this or, you know, in general, do you use whiteboards? Do you use cards? What does that look like? I, you know, I, I tend to just dive in and write. I remember something that Judd Apatow said to me a long time ago, which is, which is just assume your first draft is one of many and just keep trying stuff. And I, I do that to some extent. I'll, I'll, I'll think of it as like a painting and you're laying down the background in broad strokes and you're, and you're trying stuff. And then, and then I, I, I haven't, I don't know why I don't use a whiteboard or index cards because I essentially end up doing that in the form of outlines that I've scribbled all over. I'm, I'm friends with the screenwriter, Ed Solomon, and he has an office where, basically every single wall surface has whiteboards and he just wrote this long thing for Steven Soderbergh. Like it's going it, to, the script is like 360 pages and, and it looked like a beautiful mind in his office. <laughs> it, it was so crazy, but I mean, I think he had to do that cause it was so massive. So yeah. I'm thinking it's about time I, I grew up and got myself a whiteboard. <laughs> but it's hard to break out of your own process too. You know, like you, yeah. you do what works for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I basically use the the computer as a whiteboard. I just, yeah. I, you know, do endless drafts and save them, and endless outlines and save them. And I'm always jumping back and forth between outlines and scene and writing the actual thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, and and I like that. I think that's a, that's a, actually a nice piece of advice for people to sort of break out of their own processes. Don't well, don't I, be precious about that. I find that if I try to outline everything at the beginning, it's, Mm -hmm. it just, it doesn't work for me because I, I discover as I write and, you know, and some things unlocked for me, like for instance, uh, Roy Wood Jr.'s character in my, one of my earlier drafts, it's, it's briefly mentioned that he's got a baby at home and he's tired all the time. And, and it's, it comes up, it came up a couple of times in that draft and Robert Carlock was one of the people who read it and said, well, why don't you lean into that more? Why don't you make it like this guy is on the job and his baby never stops crying. And he's trying to do this while he's, you know, 
mm-hmm. crazy with exhaustion. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind Ooh. of a fun character trait to give him. And, and yeah. then I added the scene where the scene already existed, but then I put in the fact that he's, he's got no childcare and he's wearing his baby in his office for a couple mm-hmm. hours. And it's just when Fletch happens to show up and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I just think makes the scene better. Yeah, and it, it does. I mean, something I like about all of your movies is like these characters are fully formed. You you expect any one of them to walk off and go be in their own movie. Um, and I expect that gives actors something to get excited about, right? It gives them a reason to want to be a part of this. Um, tell me a little bit about this. Is, this is um, the best we've seen Ham in years, I think. Um, and tell me a little bit about working with John on this character and how do you direct him and how how did you direct him differently in Fletch if you did? Um, Well, I knew John had all the qualities this version of Fletch needed, and I certainly was writing with him in mind. Um, I felt like, you know, I mean, I've loved John in in really silly characters like the one he plays in, in Kimmy Schmidt. Um, really makes me laugh. And, and, and we've all seen John, you know, do SNL and 30 rock and be really funny, but this, this was something different. And I thought he's also in drama played a lot of really dark people. Of course, Don Draper being the primary one and Fletch isn't dark. He traverses the world of dark people and dark things, but he himself kind of loves life and is really curious and kind of is amused by people. Um, And he has, you know, there are people he doesn't like and there are things in the world he doesn't like, but he's not, he's not a brooding, tortured, damaged guy. Uh, And so, you know, I was, I was able to work with John just to strip all of that out of the character and how he might play it and like never let him get too angry. Like he's human. He's not maybe quite as aloof as Chevy Chase's version, but uh, you know, so he is human and he does push back to people at times, but, but he, he's pretty unflappable. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I knew John was, you know, I know John's funny in a very dry, um, silly, irreverent way. And so I would write to that and I would, you know, and we would, when we would start to rehearse a scene, if I felt like it wasn't, didn't quite have enough of that, I'd, I'd, I'd point out where he could put that in. And, you know, as a fan mm-hmm. of John and a, a friend of his, I was excited to put him at the center of this, um, because I thought, yeah, I really hope people see this and say, oh, I, I'm pleasantly surprised that John is like, this really works for him. Because I think a lot of people immediately say, like, I don't see him playing Chevy Chase. And well, we didn't intend for him to play Chevy Chase. Right. So so um, even though there were similarities, it's its, its own thing. So I'm glad, I'm glad you liked his performance because I'm, yeah, I'm, really, I'm good. really proud of his work as his friend. <laughs> so. um uh well the movie is really good i hope folks will check it out um remind me where it is streaming it's well it's it's uh, on demand like you know apple yeah. amazon the same day it opens in theaters it's going to open in like i know 400 500 theaters uh you know i i mean it's it's a brave new world movies like this especially movies that don't really aim at younger people because it's mm-hmm. not a sex comedy uh, of, of that style, having having made some of them, um, <laughs> have a hard time getting on screens. I mean, I, you don't see them in the theater all that much. I mean, you don't see that many comedies in the theater these days. So yeah. I wasn't surprised that it wasn't going to get, you know, a big 
theatrical release. I was very pleased it got any theatrical release. And, and I think this is, you know, the, all, all bets are off and they're trying stuff. So it, it'll be in theaters, it'll be on demand. And then in October, it'll be on Showtime. It'll end in okay. October. Um, yeah, so I think by the time people hear this, uh, we should be weeks away from Showtime, but they should absolutely go yeah. um, or go to a theater and see it. Um, Confess Fletch, it's really good. Uh, can you talk about what is next for you? Are you working on anything exciting or interesting? I'm doing, oh. I'm, I'm doing a pilot with Ronnie Chang um, oh, cool. uh, for Hulu. Ronnie plays uh, a GM of a Singapore basketball team who is brought to Brooklyn to be the GM of the Brooklyn Nets. And uh, it's really funny. And, and Ronnie uh, co-wrote the script with, with a, a great comedy writer. And um, it's, it's at home. I'm excited to work at home. But I, I, I love Ronnie. I love his stand-up. I love him on The Daily Show. Um, okay. And I, yeah, I think it's really cool. And it'll be fun. We, the, we have access to the Barclays Center and, and Nets oh, stuff. Wow. And the NBA is signed off. So it's, it's, it's exciting. Oh, that's wild. Um, cool. We can't wait to see it. Come back and chat anytime. Thanks, Greg. It was great to meet you. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. That was, this was a pleasure. <laughs> Folks, a real treat for you. Uh, you. By now, you have seen Do Revenge, the enormous hit uh, feature film that is on Netflix right now. Uh, and we have the director, our old friend, Jennifer Caton Robinson, back with us, and her co-writer, Celeste Ballard, also back with us. Um, thanks to both of you for coming in, and congrats. Thank you. Thanks. Excited um, to be here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, Jen, I was listening to our past conversation, which was like 2017 was the last time we talked on microphones, and um, it was shortly after um someone great and 2019 was it 2019 that's right yeah yeah um and you didn't mention this movie at all you didn't mention do revenge at all um was this a secret when did you two start working on this uh how did this get started this is the easy softball question that i'll lead you off with i don't think it was a secret i don't know how to keep anything a secret um i'm quite i'm quite bad at it uh, I, we started working on it in post on someone great. So it was definitely a thing. It was definitely a thing that we were actively working on. Um, when I was right. So that's like, when did we pitch to Netflix? I think we pitched in early 2019, I want to say, but I think we had our very first like meeting about it in 2018, like our official, oh, wow. like, yes. we're going to do this. Yes. I'm yes. We, so, we, so met in September 2018 and I know that because I remember we were in the mix on someone great and we met at a hotel <laughs> these are the things I remember that's right <laughs> <laughs> sure uh a, a secret tryst that you two had yes <laughs> to talk about yes a clandestine meeting um, to talk about revenge <laughs> <laughs> um so so what was the process of getting this off the ground like I mean in that previous conversation about someone great you talked about sort of iterating the story and then the script obviously it's a very different animal when you're working with a partner but how did those early conversations go and like how did this become the thing that you two would work on together I so I was in post on someone great and was talking with producer the producer of someone great also producer of do revenge Peter Cron 
And like, what do I want to do next? I love teen films. We were watching a lot of the classic teen films. How do we do it? Kind of roundabout through a bunch of discussions, got to reimagining Hitchcock. And when we got to this idea, the first thing I thought was like, I'd love to write this with someone. And it wasn't just someone. I was like, I'd love to write this with Celeste. Like she, it was very, it was a very specific partnership in that it wasn't like an open writing assignment. It wasn't, it was like, I went to her and I was like, hey, like I have this idea. Do you want to do this with me? And it was, it was a, you know, it was what I had was, and correct me if I'm wrong, Celeste was like, Drea and Eleanor was like, Alpha and Beta meet up and then like Beta is actually going after Alpha. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> hope you've seen well, that. yes, we should say we should probably say that before. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're gonna we're gonna talk in depth about this movie. We're yeah. going to talk about all of the plot points. So, folks, go watch the movie. Uh, yeah, if you haven't already. Anyway, Twitter um, Twitter's ruined it. I don't feel bad. Uh, and that was really like it was like <laughs> such a germ, and it was like you know we talked about strangers on a train, and and then it was really just a lot of conversations and us working together and I'll let Celeste take it from here, but just really like building this world and the story and the characters together uh, before Celeste went off to outline and write the first drafts. Yeah. Well, let me, let me follow up on one thing there. I mean, what made you, you two, obviously you had worked together on Sweet Vicious. Um, What made Celeste the person to do this? And, and Celeste, I would ask that of you before I ask that of Jen, (laughs) what do you think it was that you were the person uh, that needed to be the partner on this? Um, well, I think we had, first of all, had such a fantastic time working together on Sweet Vicious and just, I think our sensibilities, uh, there is a, the Venn diagram of our interests uh, is basically one circle. <laughs> so <laughs> we, uh, I think it was very organic organic to want to work together again. I had already wanted that and made that known. Jen also wanted it, it turns out. So it was just a matter of finding the right thing. And I think I come from a comedy background and uh, years of Tina Fey worship and Jen, quite similarly, also a Tina Fey fan. And she, she knew I just like, this was also my wheelhouse. These teen movies are what shaped me as a writer and like are, are, yeah, it was just like a, just a real tone and um, world fit, if that makes sense. Sure, Um, of course. Yeah. And I think like Jen was always very dialed into the tone of this movie. And I think what all those movies have in common that we all loved is a cheeky sense of humor, um, like ranging just from the cruel intentions on the kind of more serious but camp side mm-hmm. of things all the way to the like out and out comedy of Mean Girl. And so we knew we would be dialing in somewhere in the middle of those two things. Um, and so I think I, as with a hard joke background, um, had something to offer in that department as well. That makes sense. Um, all right. So so picking up there, um, you set off on the sort of initial outline following the conversations that you two had. And what did that look like? And how much does it resemble the film that we've seen? Um, it, parts of it are identical and parts of it have completely changed. Um, I mean, I think with everything, it is uh, writing, is rewriting and uh, an evolving process, especially when you're actually making a thing that's going to get shot. So I alongside Jen worked on this like hefty more of like yeah an outline slash treatment um, mm-hmm. that was pretty detailed 
Um, and I think because we knew we were executing a big plot twist, we really had to nail down the structure of this movie first and foremost. Um, so I feel like the structure of it was like, you know, the scaffolding was always there from the beginning. Um, and then I basically worked in this Google document that Jen then got involved with, and we worked on it together before bringing that to Netflix. Um, mm. But yeah, I think there's a lot of, I feel like the characters are pretty similar. Um, I think like they deepened along the way as they should. And, um, you know, I'm sure there were different set pieces in the first draft. I, uh, but yeah, but I feel like the, especially act one, I feel like is really similar to how we started off um, in the treatment. Mm. Um, at least that's my memory of it. I yeah. can go back and check the records. <laughs> I think honestly, I think that Celeste or I or any writer who has written the thing is going to be like, there are a lot of differences and there, you know, and I think you're going to, you're going to interrogate it differently than anyone else. But the, like the thing that I think that anyone would look for if they read Celeste's first outline and then watch this movie is like, a feeling and the DNA and the characters. And that is the same. Like, so I feel like mm -hmm. Celeste is not giving herself enough credit. So I'm going to give her more credit. But I oh. like that <laughs> no, is. No, I, no, I, no, I know, I know. I just, I, we are both, we are both, you are, you are very generous. And I think that, you know, yes, things changed and writing is rewriting and we did things together and we did things separately. And, and there's all of that in the soup. But Celeste's treatment is this movie. Like, I truly do believe hmm. that, like, what we came up with and what we spoke about and then what she wrote and what is in her first drafts, like most of the, like, like all the iconic lines and the characterization of Dre and Eleanor and really like finding that tone and it, it, it all exists in those first documents in like a very big way. And I think that is something that I know I personally as the director, not just as co-writer, but as the director, went back to a lot. Like in the editing process, when I felt quite lost at a, at a certain point, I went back to the first drafts. I went back to the shooting script, the first shooting draft. I went back to the casting draft. Like I went back to these drafts and was like, what did we want to do? <laughs> and how hmm. do we make it this? Because the thing was never as pure and as good and as like, in, like right when it, like when we were in those rooms together in the very beginning, like that's what the movies always wanted to be. And I, as a director, came back to that a lot in just using that as my North Star. Oh, wow. Yeah, really I think we, I think we like had the voice from minute one. And I think that hmm. is what makes this movie succeed. So that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that, and it makes sense. I mean, it feels like from those initial conversations, there was a clarity of vision to this. Um, was there something, you know, like you're, you're both, smart writers who have written things that work on multiple levels. Is there something that, you know, outside of saying we want to play in this sort of 90s teen movie toy box um, and we want to do this sort of Hitchcock riff, is there something that you both wanted to say with the movie? Was there a thematic element that that sort of drove you or sort of kept you centered? I think it's the relationship, and Celeste, please chime in, the relationship between Dre and Eleanor and the ways in which mm -hmm. trauma, especially the trauma that we experience as, like, young women and teenage women kind of shape us and, like, sh like shape our choices and shape who we are and who we think we should be. Like, all of that was really the, you know, living underneath every, every joke, every choice, mm -hmm. everything that we were doing and everything we talked about. Um, and I would say the other side of the like the thematic thing was like the idea of the mask that you wear versus the person underneath. 
Yeah, we talked a lot. We would like talk through every character and who they're trying to project themselves to be and who they actually are. And that was really important. I mean, even for like Max, who is such an out and out villain, we talked about that a lot with him too. Um, yeah, you want you yeah. want every character, and I think Max is a great example. You want every character to feel like a person. And I think when someone just feels like a villain, like it was very intentional for us, and and I put it at the end of the movie because it was very intentional that every character is kind of a piece of shit in this movie. <laughs> like they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't make the best choices. But we leave every character. We leave Alicia Bowes, Tara, and Austin Abrams, Max, Andrea, and Eleanor, played by Camila Mendez and Maya Hawk, in places where they are actively trying to better themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, is it a little satirical? Is it a little funny? Is there a spin on how we do it? Is it subverted? Sure. But I, it was very intentional for us to not just make a movie. It's a movie where everyone is the hero and everyone is the villain. And that is down to the main villain. That is down to, like, Max, the main villain, who is yeah. just kind of, like, a sad boy who, like, feels like everyone only likes him because he's rich. And that's kind of true. Uh, and, you know, so he <laughs> makes choices born of that trauma and born of that experience. Um, you know, so there. So that's, yeah. And that I, think, I think in terms of sub-themes, obviously we wanted to do a female friendship movie that ended on a friendship note. Um, and I think it was important to us to reflect, you know, our personal experience that female friendships are extremely messy and chaotic a lot, oftentimes, especially if you've ever been in an alpha and beta dynamic. And to just really see that on screen in a way I, I feel like I haven't really seen before, just mm-hmm. in terms of them, us not having to like them the whole time. Yeah, I I wondered about that and like writing the nuances of that kind of friendship, right? Because it is so complicated. And I think you you do a great job getting across the, you know, the ups and downs of that and the tiny details and like the constantly changing dynamic. Um, and, And I'm curious to hear about like tracking that friendship as the script started to take shape across uh, the story. I'm gonna let you take what kind of work did that entail? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) listen, was I writing from experience as a (laughs) former beta and a lot of alpha beta relationships? Yeah, of course I was. (laughs) Was I exercising all my demons by letting the beta kind of win? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think it I've been in a lot of especially like when I was a teenager and honestly in my early 20s, been in these kind of relationships. And so it was like me kind of going into like why you get trapped in those relationships. And I think a lot of it, like, I think there is a very, even though Maya secretly has the upper hand, I think people like Drea who are charismatic vortexes, like are very easy to get sucked up into like their world and what they're doing and become their, you know, pawn is the most extreme version of that, but just like minion (laughs) on the lighter level. Um, And I think that's really, uh, relatable for a lot of like teen friendships. Um, I don't know a single person who hasn't had a relationship like that. Um, So I think that was just writing towards the truth of that experience Mm -hmm. was kind of a North star for me. Um, Yeah. And then there's the fun wish fulfillment of like, what if (laughs) the beta secretly had the upper hand and um, you know, the joy of watching (laughs) that play out, which I think is like the fun, the reason that twist is fun is not just because like, we pulled off a writing heist and like, oh, right. we got you. It's that like 
everyone wants that kind of wish fulfillment comeuppance for the people who have wronged you. Um, yeah. And, and then again, I think satisfying on a character level. For sure. And, and I think like what's fun about the movie is like, it doesn't <laughs> end perfectly. Like it kind mm -hmm. of, ends in this like like the most truthful part of the movie is i think the bonfire scene where the two of them are like does any of this make you feel better and they're like no i got caught up in a thing and now here we both are um to me that like really resonates and i think that's the thing you can't do when you're in those relationships is just to kind of like call call it like it is and be like are we both doing this thing yes we are let's like not um but i think that's the fun of this movie is that they're able to have that self-awareness <laughs> and then move forward well, it sounds like from the beginning, you know, there was, again, this this clarity to this writing it. Um, and we'll talk about production and post-production um, in a minute. But like, what were the challenges? What were what were the hard scenes to get through or the hard sequences to get through the plot stuff, whatever it was? What were the real what were the parts when you were stuck? I think the third act was the hardest. I think the like second half of the movie, and like I think you... the, the first half of the movie yeah. came together, like, it, like you like understand what it is. You understand like they're going to meet and then they're going to team up and then they're going to start this plan. And then I think it was continuing to kind of like, I think we knew where we were going until the twist. And I think post the twist, like, how do you like resolve <laughs> this thing that we've, <laughs> this monster that we've yeah. set up. And so that was definitely, I, I at least for me, uh, the most challenging part of the writing of this film. Did did you know where you wanted it to end, how you wanted these two to end together, or were you or was that part of the figuring out? No, I think we knew that we wanted that. Like like Celeste was saying, like we knew we knew where we were driving to, but we didn't know how to get there. Mm -hmm. And it's like again, and it's like it's also like in the middle, like on page 50 in like the middle of this movie, there's a set piece that could be the end of the movie where they dose the entire senior class with mushrooms. Like sure. it's like there was like there are like big things that happen in the in the middle and in the earlier like so it's like it's also just trying to like continue to kind of like top your own ideas in a way that feels like it's going to satisfy an audience and like we're not mm -hmm. kind of bringing you to a peak and then you're just kind of like rolling backwards. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, what was it for you, Celeste? And and I'll say, like, also, how did you work through that that challenge of the second half of the movie? I feel like early days for me, making sure, like, when I was writing the first draft, making sure the twist worked was the hardest part because mm -hmm. there is, you have to build in stuff that like when you rewatch, you can like tell that Eleanor is setting Drea up and that has to work for the twist to work. Um, so I was always like the twist evangelist in terms of the structure. And I think there were times where I was really beating my head against the wall and had to, you know, I mean, that's why you have a creative team though. Then you talk to Jen, you talk to Peter, and like we yeah. all figured out together. Um, but that was a big challenge. And then I do think the third act was challenging too to find a way that like in a way that both characters have like the keys to the castle that they've been trying to get into the whole movie like they can both destroy each other but then have to make a choice not to so like mm -hmm. the germ of it was always there but i agree with jen like the, ex the execution and making sure it landed um is definitely a challenge in the writing as well is there i mean i I imagine like that that gets worked through 
through discussions, right? You, you just talk and talk about it and you put things on the board or you put things on the page. Um, is there stuff that you each had written in the past though, that helped to inform how to get to that third act? Like, I mean, you know, we learn from everything we do um, and hopefully get better because of the past stuff, but that is, that's really hard. Um, is there, is there stuff that you learned from working on previous projects that, you know, help you when you get to that point in the future? I think I learned a lot on Sweet Vicious. I think, you know, creating that, which was like, you know, a similar story of vengeance, but really actually a story about kind of healing and the twists and turns yeah. of creating that show and the arc of that the full season. I wouldn't say like episode to episode, but the arc of the full season and really like wanting it to feel right. like of one story and of a piece. I feel like that was something that I accessed, whether it was consciously or subconsciously in making Do Revenge for sure. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. Is there, I, I also wonder, you know, having one having directed one film, uh, having directed someone great, like, do you approach writing your next film? And and I don't know if this was necessarily your next film, but do you approach writing now in a different way? Um, I think I always approached writing like I was going to direct it. And I just didn't know that I was doing that, to be completely honest. Like, I think I like <laughs> always kind of saw, <laughs> I always kind of like really intensely saw what I was writing. Um, and I really intensely, like, yeah. even in the discussions with Celeste, like, when we would talk about things, like, I, like, I was like, it, it, like, it doesn't click for me until I can see it, um, until I really understand it, mm. until, like, I understand the song that's going to go there and, like, what it's going to feel like and what it's going to look like. And so a, a lot of that, I, I think that someone great, I think I wrote someone great like that. And in realizing that I had done that after making Sweet Vicious, I went to them and that's why I said, like, I, I have to, I think I have to direct right. this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like practically for sure, like I, knowing how much money I have and how much, how, how far money goes. Yes. Like a hundred percent. I think that as a writer, you approach things it, when you have made something and I don't think that's just directors. I think that's any writer that has had work produced and that has been in the production mm -hmm. process understands like exterior night differently. <laughs> um, <laughs> and that the more you put it in the script, the more fucked you are. Uh, so, you know, it's stuff like that. Like it's like big things. And it's also, I think, small things in terms of just like oh, actually physically. Oh, no. Did I freeze? Did I freeze? Oh, Am I you You're back. Yeah. Where'd you lose me? Um, no, you, you finished your, your sentence. sentence. Oh, okay, yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and Celeste, you know, on uh, on the other side of the coin, like knowing that you're working with the person who's going to direct this film, does it change the conversations around it? Does it make things easier? Does it make things harder for you? Yeah, I mean, it's it honestly makes things easier because at a certain point, this movie is likely getting made, which unlike a lot of other <laughs> things I write, uh, <laughs> that's not happening. Right? So, I mean, I've been lucky enough to like write on stuff that's in production, you know, and the animation work I've done. So I've worked, I've actually like worked with a ton of directors. Actually, that's mostly what I've done is work with directors directly on their mm. passion projects or their big, big movies. Um, so I felt very aware that if Jen didn't see it and didn't get it, like it wasn't going to fly. So like, I think when you are the writer working with a director, your role is 
like ultimately Jen's on set with all the actors making them say these lines. So it, it, it has to click with her. Um, and I have to dial into what she wants it to be. Um, which luckily on a project like, like this is the thing I've worked on that has been the most in my own voice too. So it was a total joy to do that because it was very, I'm like, what this is also what I would want. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it makes, it makes it a lot easier on that level. But I think when you are writing for a director, it is your job to know what their sensibilities are and like just pitch them a lot of ideas when things are, aren't working. Um, and yeah, and then just make sure it is a conversation because, and that's actually something I've learned the hard way. I can be a bit of a perfectionist and go off and like really <laughs> be in the muck by myself and then be like, uh, this. But um, I think making things more of a conversation is always the move, um, especially like during a lot of the writing of this, Jen lived in the apartment below me. So it was very easy for us <laughs> to talk about it all the time. Oh, that's terrific. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I really appreciated about Celeste and that I think made this movie better was that, yes, yeah, she like she wrote for the director and for me and like and like, yes, like if I didn't see something, it wasn't going to fly. But she also was very, very good, especially in the post process as she was watching cuts. And I was like coming up with like wacko fucking ideas that I was like, maybe this is going to work. Maybe this will make it better. She really stuck to her guns and like told me what she believed was right. And she was right. Like she, like we, we can get to like what those conversations were and she was right. And I think that that is the mark of like a true, like she really, she was very, very good and very malleable in terms of like taking my notes and being like, yep, got it. Yes. I'll do that. Yes. But when she like, but like she also really helped me stay within the vision of the film in a really like beautiful, amazing way. And so I just wanted to say that about, about just like working and working for a director because I'm now someone that has written for myself, but also just wrote for a director. Like I just was the sure. Celeste of Thor Love and Thunder. So it's like, it's such <laughs> a, right. it's such a, it's such a, it's like, it is a different muscle. And I think something that she did really beautifully was be able to be that person, but also really like be the co-writer of this movie and like, be like, no, this is, this is what I yeah. think is right. And this is what I believe. And she was right. Um, so I just want to say that. I think that's really interesting. And like, there is something to being the writer who is not directing and like having that, it's it's a very TV situation, right? Um, having that, um, the full vision in your brain as the director has to sort of have that, but also has to do all these little other things, right? The the day-to-day, -day, the scene-to-scene -scene stuff. Um, Celeste, how do you, I mean, this is a big question, but like, how do you, how do you maintain that? How do you keep that vision and know what's right, even as you see the thing coming together or making changes on the fly? Yeah, I think it was very, I've definitely had like the easiest time doing that on this project because of Jen's and I, yeah. our unique relationship and friendship. Um, and I think too, it, what made it easy is uh, I love this movie so much and cared so much. And so um, it, I feel like just my heart was fully in it, um, which made it very easy to like speak up. But I think like the other side of that coin is Jen gave me a forum to speak up and in, like included me in all those processes and wanted to know what I thought. And I think Jen also as a personality, and this is how she is, I 
think Jen, if I may be so bold, say across the board, she likes it when people are direct with her and yeah, like, yes, yes. like aren't coy and say like, here is my strong opinion. Like Jen will always do what she wants to do with that opinion, like because she has her vision, but that's right. It is, she <laughs> wants right. that feedback from people. She wants people to like, she doesn't want the sugar-coated version. Um, she wants like, cause she, her goal always was like, how do I make this better? And I think anyone who had an idea to make it better, she would be receptive to that. And I think a lot of people can't do that um, because of ego, because of whatever, um, yeah. wanting to be done with the project. There are so many reasons why you'd just be like, uh, I give up. Um, but Jen is not that, she's a fighter. Um, and so I, I felt very empowered by that. And I think that's why, I mean, there are a million reasons why this movie will always be my favorite, probably my favorite thing I ever work on. But um, it, it's, it was really confidence building to come in and mm -hmm. be like, actually, here's what I think. And I, I'm through those back and forth conversations. I feel like I learned way more about how to write and how a movie is actually made and like hmm. what actually works because I got to see the post process come together um, yeah. because that's I mean, writing is one thing, but like then the whole movie gets shot and then it gets assembled and that's when the movie gets made. Like writing yeah, yeah, yeah. is 30% of it. So interesting. Um, and, and let's take a quick um, Love and Thunder detour because um, Jen, you know, as you said, you were the Celeste on that. Yes. And so, so tell me about like filling that role and keeping the same, the same thing, right? Like keeping the sort of story in your head, even as uh, Taika is, is working on the scene to scene, minute to minute stuff. Yeah, I was in Australia for six months. So I was there with him and I was on set for a, a more a, a bit more than half the shoot because I had to leave in April. They from April to June they were still shooting and I was I had to literally I had one week and then went right into do revenge. Um uh which I oh don't suggest anyone do ever. Uh, it, was horrible, <laughs> it was fucking horrible. Uh but I mean working with Taika like I was very intimidated at first. I was like truly scared. I also met with him and then on like a Tuesday and then that Sunday or that weekend, he won a BAFTA and a WGA award. And then <laughs> the next week we had one meeting and then they were like, okay, go off with the script and like do a pass. And then that weekend he won an Oscar. And, and then I had to come back in and was like, here's the draft. It's mostly questions. Um, but He's wonderful. <laughs> like he's like he like he did nothing to make me feel this way. Like I was like, this is Taika Waititi. Like, right, right. What? like I, what is happening? Um, he like in our first meeting, he like laid down on his couch, very very Taika like, and he was like, so, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna fix it? And I was like, oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm just, I was like, help. Uh, but he, it it was he is someone that, and I feel like I took this into making do revenge and in looking at do revenge and in the writing that we had to do in the production and the post process he kind of described thor as like an eight-year-old dumping out a box of toys and like looking at all the things that you had to play with and being like okay how are we going to make this work like we have a cowboy we have a dinosaur we have one lego <laughs> like where's like how do we make a story uh and it was really it's so freeing because that's very cool that like his the challenge for him was to be like how do we fit all of these cool wacko things that I want to do into a story and how do we make it all kind of fit mm -hmm. together um, which is not how I we, we, we approach story very differently and I think our differences yeah. is what was so wonderful because we we like there was like challenging each other and there was you know a lot of conversation 
Um, but that way more so than this because it's Marvel. Like you're not you're serving many masters there because it's not just Taika. It's Kevin Feige and it's Brad Winterbaum and it's Brian Chapek and it's like all of the different people that are kind of in the process of Thor. Um, but for me, it was really just like, what is what Taika? What do you want? Like, I'll do it six different ways. Let's see what works. You know, we had. Uh, so many, like so many drafts. I, when I left in April, I think we were at like double salmon. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I didn't think you could get to double salmon. Yeah. Like it was like, you know, it's just like every day it was changing and it was a living, breathing thing. And we would like change things on set and change things in rehearsals after set. Mm. And like, he would have ideas. So that was way more of a, you know, it, it really was like a, a document that evolved like minute by minute. Um, but it was very much a collaboration in that, like, I was standing there. Like, I looked like um, Nathan Fielder in the rehearsal. I had. <laughs> I need to get that, like, if, if I ever were Tiger again, I'm going to get that, like, computer neck thing. Because I would literally just be, like, running around with my computer, like, following, like, multiple Chris's and, like, Taika and just typing um, in, like, the trench of, like, an alien planet uh, in the middle of Australia. So it was, but that was, it was, like, Unbelievable. it was, it was, that was the process. It was, like, it was, like, both, yeah. there was, like, a very intense process and, like, kind of no process at all. It was just, like, what do we want to do? Right. Let's do it. So to, that's really interesting that, to hear, then, that you sort of jumped right into Do Revenge after that. And, like, hearing about your process on Someone Great, which I would urge people to go back and listen to that episode and, and watch the movie if they haven't. Um, but like, these are very different processes to making a film uh, that are sort of, they're next to each other. There's some overlap, but these, like, this is not how you necessarily approach a film. Does that experience on Thor change anything when you go about your approach to do revenge? Whether yes. it's to the shooting process or whether it's a, to the collaboration process? I think it, it definitely changed the, on Someone Great, I wrote a movie and then I shot the movie and I didn't rewrite it. I didn't ever, and I didn't go into mm -hmm. it. I didn't look at it during production. We just like, like things would happen on set, but I wasn't continuing to like kind of interrogate the work and interrogate the work and how do we plus and how do we plus. And on Thor, that was all we did. And I really enjoyed that. Like I really enjoyed the process of, you know, sitting with Natalie and Chris and Taika and talking about a scene and finding like, okay, here's what's on the page. Here's the spirit of it. Like, how do we make it better? Like, and, and having those conversations and bringing that, I brought a lot of that into Do Revenge. You know, sometimes I think it was for the better. And sometimes I think it was just like a little too chaotic. Um, cause it wasn't a Marvel movie and I didn't have all the time in the world. Um, sure. but I do think that there was, there was something really fun about having like kind of like having the script throwing it away coming back to it like that you know dance uh which I did on Thor really I really liked bringing to mm -hmm. do revenge and like having a lot of like even continuing having conversations with Celeste and being like hey okay so like I had this conversation with Maya and this is what she thought and like talking about those things and like when Celeste was on set like thinking about jokes thinking about like what we can be doing to make this better like is this the right version of it and just continually constantly again like interrogating like is this the best version of the thing and i think mm -hmm. some i think i would say like the majority of the time i think in the the end of it all um after all of the time that we did that i think it made it better i think that there is definitely a limit and you should like know when that limit is and i think i've learned that limit but i did learn that limit hmm. the eleanor and drea way which is the hard way 
Um, and Celeste, I, uh, I assume you were on set also during production. I was there. I think I was there the first week and the last week. So I wasn't, um, doing the writer on set role, um, that exists on some movies, but, uh, you know, when I was there helping as best I could and like, you know, Jen wearing all the hats for this movie was a very intense process because she would like get home from a long day of shooting and then have to like rewrite pages to send to Sarah yeah. Michelle Geller. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, like her, the work day never ends for her and it's very insane. Um, so it, it was fun to be there um, for some of that. Uh, and yeah. And what was your role throughout production? I imagine, you know, were you still living in proximity <laughs> to each other? Uh, and I imagine you both were talking frequently. Yeah, I feel like I would check in with Jen frequently as she was shooting and she would call me with anything that came up. Um, but she was shooting in Atlanta and I was still in L.A. So we weren't oh, okay. uh, next to each other. The movie had to move. Look, gotcha. We originally wrote it for San- as Santa Barbara, but then it moved to become a, an iconic Miami movie. Thank God. Six um, weeks. So Jen was in Atlanta and then Miami. <laughs> yeah, six weeks before production, yeah. <laughs> we moved the entire movie to Atlanta because we had Maya Hawk and then Stranger Things pushed. Um, and then we lost Maya Hawk. And I was like, oh, de- wow. like, like despondent for several months trying to like figure out like, okay, wh- who is going to be in the movie? And then got a call I remember being like in Australia um and getting a call being like hey do you want Maya back because I think we can make it work and she shot she was in second position with us she was in first position with Stranger Things and she saw the fourth season of Stranger Things and do revenge simultaneously in Atlanta oh my god yeah and if you've seen both you know that's yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's unbelievable um while we're talking about it you know what was let's talk a little bit uh, about casting and you know like we often write with people in mind or with types in mind but what did that casting process look like for you both I mean I don't write with people in mind like I really try Mm -hmm. and leave it so like I'm like I want the person to appear and be right and from and I just know it and then that's the casting uh rather than the other way around in terms of like I think that writing for people is great if you know someone but I never am like oh we've written it for this person and I don't think Celeste you felt that way either right no no yeah we did not on this um, and then it was just a really like, it was just like a traditional audition process, which I really like love the audition process. And I think I, it's never about like, are you talented? Can you do it? Like most people, like everyone, like everyone is talented. Everyone can do it. It's more just like, are, like it's, it's like, are you the person? It's like finding a soulmate. It's like, it's not that you're not great. It's just that you're not the soulmate of this character. Um, yeah. and I think in within seconds of both Maya and Cami reading, it was an instant like, that's it. There it is. And it was not just about them separately. It was about knowing that like, I was like them to like, it's them separately, but it's also going to be them together. And I think for me, from Sweet Fishes to Someone Great to Do Revenge, something that I really like, I genuinely care about is not just casting women who are great, but casting women who are going to work, who are going to be great together. Because I think Mm -hmm. chemistry is such an intangible thing and if you don't have it nothing works you can write the best script in the world and if your actors don't have chemistry 
you're completely fucked. Absolutely. Um, there's, there's like this amazing meta conversation going on about, you know, this chemistry and communication and the dynamic of working together. Um, that is about you two. You, you realize that, right? Yeah. (laughs) Did you, (laughs) did you have to think about that or was it better to put that away uh, as you were working on this film? I feel like we were aware from minute one. <laughs> yeah, we were like, like sitting we in the just room joked that we're Drea and Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like it was definitely like um, an an alpha and a beta walk into a bar and write a teen movie. Like it's like it was very like it was like <laughs> yeah for sure. We, yeah, like there are there's and there's a lot of there's it's funny because there's a lot of I feel like there's a lot of me and Drea, but there's also like parts of me and Eleanor in the same way that I think there's a lot of, of like, course, and I think yeah. that the, the duality of those characters and what's so rich and nuanced about the characters is that it's like, like Celeste and I kind of like, we're able to jump between the alpha and the beta inside ourselves and like infuse both of those things in both of the characters at different points. Yeah. Which, and, yeah. and you're right. Like that is what makes it rich. That is what makes these real people that, you know, are, are worth telling a story about. Um, I did want to ask, you know, Celeste, it feels like, and, and Jen mentioned like there being jokes, even in that initial treatment that you wrote. Um, it feel, it felt like watching the movie that every line was calibrated to be a quotable line. Uh, (laughs) the kind of thing that we will still be, you know, quoting 30 years from now in the way we do like, Heathers and Clueless and and the movies that you guys sort of drew from. Um, Tell me about writing those lines, about writing dialogue that hits so hard. I mean, that uh, was, I think, the most fun part of the movie. But I don't think we wrote lines to be quotable. Um, I feel like the only line we knew would instantly be quotable was Glenergy. And then (laughs) everything else, we were just kind of trying to dial into a, I, I feel like in, especially in movies like this, specificity is your friend. And I think like one thing Jen and I both have going for us in terms of our voices are making sure every line does sound specific, both to the character, but also just in terms of like the texture and details of what they're saying. That sounds very heady and obnoxious, but like. But, but you're right. Like there's something to that. Yeah, you don't want them speaking in generalisms and like vagaries. You want it to be like, like layered and rich and referent. And like this movie was always going to be very referential. And so I think that like was always infused into every line. And I think too, like so much of that is helped by all these lines pop because of the edit. Like comedy happens Mm -hmm. in the edit. I and in the performance, obviously, that is. I think like. Cammy and Maya are wildly talented comedic performers, and so is everyone else in this movie. It, it like really awesome is astounding. Um, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, the, he is a treasure. Like his a reaction treasure. shots a, make a me real, laugh so hard in this movie. Yeah, an absolute treasure. <laughs> yeah. So protect, I think like protect finding. Awesome yeah, and I think Jen in the edit, like you got to direct and edit towards the comedy that we've written for that mm-hmm. stuff to work. Cause I feel like it's really yes. easy to write those lines and then have them just not pop, not land. Yeah. Like, so um, it's definitely a process. Well, and let's talk about that edit before we wrap up. Um, was there, you know, you mentioned that like this, the edit is 
telling the story again and and coming back to what the story initially was the thing you guys got excited about um tell me about what the what post-production looked like and some of the challenges there Wait, can I go back to, I have an addendum to what I was just saying, Yeah. which I think like something that really helped writing those lines in this movie is that Jen and I wrote to make each other laugh and <laughs> would text each other lines all the time. <laughs> like, like if you went back and checked, checked the records, the archives on our texting, <laughs> like a lot of them are things we just texted each other. Like, does this work? And like, then if it did, we would put it in the script. So anyways, that's <laughs> my, that. la- my last letter process is, uh, voice notes and textings your friend when you're trying to make people laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I mean, you're right. Like it's not going to work unless it makes you laugh. Right. That's, yeah. that's how we, the only way we can trust comedy is if it makes us laugh. Um, tell me about post production, Jen, I feel like you want to really get into it. That's really, it was really, it was, it was a process. Um, <laughs> is it really like, it's funny. I was on set. What, and I looked what was at difficult? Everything. I looked at Peter Cron and I said, this is going to be so much easier than someone great. And he said, okay. But in his head, he was saying, no, no, you dumb bitch. It's going to be worse. Um, uh, and he actually did tell me that he said that in his head recently. Uh, he's like, remember when he said that? I was like, yeah. Uh, so what made it difficult? It's a, this movie is a, a tough needle to thread. Tonally, story-wise, like, building Drea was definitely easier than building Eleanor in terms of the edit. Um, but, and there were a couple of reasons. Number one of which is I had Maya Hawk do uh, every take a different way. So I was like, okay, we're going to do one take where you're full beta, one take where you're like kind of in a middle space and one take where you're evil Eleanor. And oh, we, wow. in every scene, in every scene, there was a different version of like, so that I ha- would have access to every kind of color yeah in the toolbox of Eleanor. But what that means is like, there's not like you can look at a line and it's just like six performances of a line. You're like, okay, that's the best performance. You have six different performances of the line. And so you're, it's building something. It's like, it was very tricky to build um, and figure out, you know, what, where, where it goes too far. Like, are you connecting to Eleanor? Do you know enough about Eleanor? Like, are you there with her? Because I think Drea... Drea is our eyes and character. Like you're kind of with her from the jump. But something that came up is we did reshoots. We reshot the first, that party, that very first party Mm. in the movie, that is a reshoot. That is something the movie did not start that way. And people were not, we were screening this movie and we were testing this movie. And people were like, we don't understand the tone. Because it was taking them too long to get into scenes where the tone was super, super present. It wasn't present from the jump. Interesting. Um, And so we... Reshot, you didn't, people were like, I don't understand why Dre is the queen bee because the beginning of the movie in the original script was kind of like a more intimate dinner, which was hmm. a Netflix note. Um, uh, and like, cause it, Celeste's original script started in a party and then Netflix was like, there are too many parties, make it a dinner. And then we made it a dinner and we <laughs> shot the dinner. And then we came back to the original thing that was in the original script, which was like a big party where you understood who Drea was in the ecosystem of this high school. Um, oh, interesting. Wait, I want to interrupt for a sec because I want to like ask a couple of real insidery yes. questions. Yes. Um, one is when you get a note like that, and like Celeste, clearly you were right. Um, what <laughs> What is the conversation with Netflix like? You have to kind of like it's like you're you kind of get lost in the process. Um, 
and there have been a lot of drafts and we had talked about it a lot. And like, there were a lot of parties and it's like, you know, while Celeste was clearly right. And like, we had the right version at the beginning, there's also fully a version that I could have seen where like Netflix was right. And like, and like we would have screened the movie and they would have been like, Oh my God, like enough parties. Like, so it's, you just never know (laughs) until you shoot something and it's wrong. Like, I think that that's, that's the thing is like, it wasn't, there are sometimes that I get notes or I'm sure Celeste, you get notes or we get notes together on this where we were like wild. No, like a thousand percent. No. And I said, no, um, <laughs> like for sure not happening. And then there are notes where you're like, it's hard. It's hard to know who's right here. Like, I think that my instincts are mm-hmm. right, but also like, I'm not like, I, I can't like, do we still get the spirit of the scene? Like, is it still like them at like a fancy Miami restaurant? And like, do we, like, are we understanding the world? Are we like, yes. Like in, in its DNA in like script form, it didn't seem like it was going to be the wrong choice. Um, And then you saw it on screen. You were like, oh, wrong choice. Um, But yeah, so that's, (laughs) I think sometimes you just have to do that. Yeah. I think too, it makes sense. My biggest takeaway from that, from my point of view, is um, besides my instinct that I needed to open on, on a party, just seeing the different version of it was just very clarifying and something that I've, I feel like was a big writing lesson I took from this movie is that scenes really have to pull double duty. Like hmm. that opening, like I feel like the version we shot was a little more parsed out. It was like, okay, here's... Drea, here are the friends, like here is the world. And those things are a little bit separated. And so it, like people felt like it took a little bit long to understand what was happening. And I feel like putting it all in one scene, then that scene is doing all those things at once. And yeah. that just works, I think, especially it's no surprise to anyone. The first five minutes of a Netflix movie are very important to them <laughs> and the people watching at home, like to have it just like be a multitasking scene is definitely the move. And I think that's something I'll take forward in anything I write in the future is how to make an impactful opening. Um, just like do everything at once. That's really Yeah. And smart. I think yeah. um, even the original party scene that was in the select, like Celeste's first draft, that would have needed to be reshot because that like, we took sure. those beats and put them in a restaurant. So it's like, it was it was beyond, right. like, yes, we needed the party and we needed that. And I think that element really worked. And we probably could have made it work way better than we made this work. But it was also just like, you just, you know, we had the, the you know, extreme privilege and luxury of reshooting the opening, <laughs> having all the data in the world of like how, what, what is the most impactful way to open this film? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like in all movies, you should be able to, reshoot the opening after you've done a lot of work on the movie. Right. I feel like Make it the last would, thing you shoot. What are we totally, doing? Totally. Most movies would get better if you can reshoot it's, like, it's crazy that that's not, that you don't just bake in like one week of reshoots into a movie and you're not like, you don't like shoot it and then edit it. And then you're like, okay, and now we do the reshoots and now we put it out because you learn so much in the edit. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was like working with Maya and having her do these variations on the character in these different takes. Um, I'm curious about the conversation that you had with her before production started about like, this is how we need to approach this. We came up with it together. We had a lot of conversations. We went over a lot oh, of the cool. scenes together. Like this was Maya and I collaborated on this very closely. Like it was something where we knew that, 
and and we knew in in speaking and going back to what Celeste said about writing the movie and the twist and protecting the twist and wanting it to be a film that is satisfying both the first time you watch it and the second time you watch it when you know, I think that extends yeah. super extends to Maya's performance and kind of all it like lives and dies in Maya's performance. And so knowing that we needed the little bits and pieces that if you watch the movie again, you you know, saw it. And I think that, that that was like, there were also things that came up organically. There's a moment in the, there's a, the car scene where they're in the car and Maya tells her story about what happened to her. Cammy was so in the scene that she interrupted Maya. That's not scripted. Cammy just like, Maya oh says like, she told everyone, she, I tried to hold her down and kiss her. And Cammy goes, what? And Maya is so in character and so rattled by this girl it like not only interrupting her story, but like clearly not remembering that she like has kind of like this, like, uh, yeah, moment. Um, and that's, I was like watching that. I was like that, like, that's it. Like, those are the moments that really help sell the film in the yeah. second time you watch it. Oh, that's so smart. That's really neat. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that you can't script, right? Like that is the kind of happy yes. accident that happens yes. that you get thrilled by. <laughs> um, yes. All right. Uh, let's, let's wrap up. Uh, Do Revenge is on Netflix. Go watch it if you haven't already, but you have, it's enormously successful. Congrats to both of you. Um, can you talk about what's next for each of you? Do you know what's next for each of you? I'm not allowed to talk about it. Or both of you? <laughs> I'm, allowed, I'm allowed to talk about it. at I'll, least one I'll take thing. my answer off air. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm writing a movie, an animated movie that's based on the DC comic Metal Men for Warner Brothers. Oh, right, um, that's so fun. Yeah, I think I meant was. I can't remember if I could talk about it last time I was. Yeah, on, I but, think so. But yeah, it's Ron Clements and John Musker who have directed all your favorite Disney and written most of all your favorite Disney movies are doing it. <laughs> um, so I'm working closely with them on writing that script right now. Cool. Uh, yeah. Um, that's great. What uh, What are you both watching these days? Have you seen any movies that you love that you want to recommend? Are you watching any TV shows that you love that you want to recommend? Uh, Celeste, let's start with you. Okay, cool. Is Jen frozen? Oh, I, I think I unfroze. <laughs> you guys froze. What did you say, Celeste? Uh, I, about what I'm watching? Nothing yeah. yet. Uh, what am I watching? I'm having a weird... I'm re-watching Party Down. <laughs> are you? I'm what doing brought, a lot of re-watching. <laughs> Um, I have a small child at home and there is like a specific mood of show I want to watch right now. Um, but more contemporary, let's focus on that. I watched all of Abbott Elementary in like two days and really, really enjoyed <laughs> it. Um, I think that show is phenomenally good. Um, it's just so funny. Yeah. Yeah. It's so good. Um, and then, yeah, I watched a little movie called You've Got Mail recently. Highly recommend. <laughs> I'm I'm living in the nineties. Oh. I'm revisiting a lot of things too. Like there's something about comfort food right now. Like yes. I'm enjoying the new <laughs> stuff that I'm watching, but I'm also rewatching The Good Place. Like, yeah, why not? Yeah. And then yeah. I watched, like, I think most people we know have watched The Bear. And now I say, oh yes, yes, chef, all the time. And <laughs> I loved, as a person who is obsessed with food and cooking, uh, that was a real dream. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Jen, are you watching anything uh, exciting and interesting that's getting you inspired? Uh, yeah, it's, I watched two things there. They were rewatches. Well, one was a rewatch and one I never watched when it was air airing, which is I rewatched Mad Men, which is just incredible like it truly is a perfect television show and the attention to detail is i, I like i just love it um and i really enjoyed rewatching it 
And then I'm watching for the first time because I never saw it, The Americans, um, oh, which so is so good. so good. And I had to stop watching it because it just gets so dark that I was like, I'm like, <laughs> also no, no one, like no one wants to talk to me about Martha. And like, all I want to do is talk about this character on The Americans. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you about Martha. Yeah, it's like, I'm just like, like so which, like- I, I want to watch the show. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, well, uh, like this it's, is a spoiler. I'm worried that I'm ahead of you, but- I want to watch. I, I think when we, she, maybe I, we I should know, write I know, the show I know about what, where what Martha's yes, up to now. Yes, we know what happens to Martha. I'm really like I literally like after okay, that, like after like because I'm in season four. Like after all that went down, I was like, I think I have to take a break, and I went back to Gilmore Girls because I was like so deeply like <laughs> shaken by the way in which Clark slash uh, oh my god Jennings, what's his name? Something Jennings. Yeah, yeah. Phil Jennings ruined her life. Like truly, just ruined this woman's life. Martha, I love Martha. Um. <laughs> Uh, so that. <laughs> Those are, that uh, is a good answer. <laughs> I like to think that Martha's thriving in Russia. <laughs> yeah, she's starring in like a very fun fish out of water comedy. <laughs> oh, right, there's a half hour comedy to be made about Martha in Russia. I also feel like there's a lot of great um, films. Really quickly, there's a lot of great films right now yeah. uh, about kind of like this in this world. The first I will say is everyone should watch Three Months by Jared Frieder, uh, directed by Jared, written and directed by Jared oh, Frieder. Yes. Um, and Not Okay, written and directed by Quinn Shepard and starring Zoe Deutsch, and Bodies, 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 I also really love. Like, I feel like there's, like, a resurgence of, like, really cool, fun uh, films yeah. for and about young people. Yeah, agreed. Um, and and Do Revenge is, is part of that. Uh, thank you both so much for being here. It's so good to catch up with you. Um, can't wait to see what's next. Thanks, Ben. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.